1: Welcome to another episode of Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts, the show where we provide audio commentary to the Eisner-nominated comic book series Atomic Robo, written by Ryan Clevenger and drawn by Scott Wegner. (laughs) I'm Scott. Hi. I'm Brian. This is my radio voice.
2: They must know our voices by now.
1: This episode, we are tackling the first volume of Atomic Robo. We started the series and we were doing the most recent volume, coming out issue by issue, Volume 7, The She Devils of the Pacific. And uh, now we are going back to the beginning.
3: Where it all started. Oh, it's going to hurt. Where the art <laughs> it- was terrible and the writing was worse. <laughs> uh-
1: I understand, Scott, that you attempt to
3: never look at this book. I try not to, yes. Here's how it goes with Scott and Atomic Robo. He never looks at anything before the volume he's working on right now. I think Volume 7 might be a slight... uh, I think he can take that one.
2: I'm happy with Volume 7, yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, fine. I think volume seven is the
2: first volume that I'm pretty much all around okay with. There are definitely like mistakes I made and things I would like to do better, but overall, yeah, I'm fine. I and mean, I guess they are all fine, but they're all fine. It's just painful to, yeah. you know, Scott, it's not for us,
3: it's for the kids, and the kids love it.
2: <laughs> and the wacky kids, yeah. And most of my problems with the old stuff is like technical. Like I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the first page of the first issue right now, and it's just some... first time in four years, <laughs> probably. Well, occasionally I accidentally see it when we open the cover <laughs> of the great paperbacks to like you know sign the books, and yeah, a recoil in horror. You know, this first volume was I had no idea what I was doing, so. It was hard.
1: Well, ex- explain your background up to this point, Scott. You said you have no idea what you were doing, but I, I see here that very recently you've you've posted a comic you did back in, uh, <laughs> in in the '90s.
3: That is really proof that you didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> Compared to that, this first volume is a thesis.
1: You got Hank the Bounty Hunter by Scott and Jeff, 94.
3: Yeah,
2: see, we didn't even put our last names on it. It was that good. (laughs) You know, (laughs) Cher or Madonna, Scott, Jeff. Right. (laughs) And that is the Jeff who is now our current letterer and book designer. So I had done a couple not a couple of comics. I did a couple pages of comics 20 years before drawing Atomic Robo number one. So I'm pretty (laughs) sure I forgot everything that I may have accidentally learned while doing that, which was mostly nothing because I did for that exactly what I did for Atomic Robo number one, which was scour the internet for pictures and comic books for panels that more or less lined up with what Brian was putting in the script and copied the poses and images because I had no concept of how to frame the objects within a panel, how to visually tell a story, any of that. Like I'm looking at this first page and there's just a million technical things wrong with it. But whatever, it gets the job done, I guess. (laughs) Like, why are these the second and third panel? Why do I have the camera tilted in this dramatic Dutch angle when it's just a couple of dudes standing around being bored on guard duty? Like, there's no reason to do that. Which obviously most people are not going to notice at all.
1: But to me, it drives <laughs> yeah, you nuts. Scott, you're you're laying your soul bare here. You're you're just admitting to being a complete incompetent by your definition, anyway. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I
2: was equal parts. Flattered and baffled when people liked my work. I, because, still um, I still am a little bit, but really at this point, like I like <laughs> none, none of it met my own standards for what good art was. <laughs> so like I would look at the comics I drew and I would just be like, oh, I wouldn't pay money for this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what year was this, by the way? Like this was 2007. Well, okay.
2: 2006, we did the book and then it came out 2007. Yeah. So somewhere in there. Last October was the fifth anniversary of Atomic Robo coming out.
1: My, how you've grown.
2: Yes. Mostly at the waistline. Well,
1: we're starting here. We've already kind of analyzed the first couple pages. But um, let's talk about the genesis of Robo. We, we touched on it in our previous episodes uh, covering the She-Devils a little bit. But um, just to cover all our bases, here we are at the beginning. Let's do
3: this right. All right. All right. Scott and I met one night at a gay bar. Ah, yes. The bearded clam. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, I, no. I, that I, I... That was it. That was
3: Not <laughs> yeah. the manhole. <laughs> uh yeah i had been uh, thinking about atomic robo for quite a while and in 2006 wanted to actually make a comic book out of it so i went to the internet and oh. scoured for artists and scott was the one who was stupid enough to say yes mm-hmm. brian at this
1: taste. point you were already somewhat famous as a web comics author well, so I don't like that brad what did you have people you know like a, a a laundry list of people being
3: like
2: oh mr clever I'll draw for you.
3: No, because I did this totally in secret. Oh. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, over the years of, of working on Ape Theater, every now and then I would do, hey, you know, let's do a week of guest comics because I'm going to go on vacation for a week or whatever. And wow, the sludge that would come out of that every single time. We would eventually, like on the, the very final day. There'd be some really good contributions or, or whatever. Usually, even more than I could actually use. But for this first six days, it was just whatever people just slapped together, and uh, I didn't want to have to go through that with Atomic Robo.
2: <laughs> Little did you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think at that same point, even though I didn't think I could draw very well, I was still at the point where thought it was a
3: terrible comic. So.
2: Oh yeah. Well, so I thought it would match up perfectly with my artwork. Um. <laughs> And around the time you were looking to do something with the terrible idea of robo, I was thinking that, well, while my art is terrible, it's no more terrible than a lot of comic book art I see so I thought what the hell I the only thing I'd ever been drawn back to again and again was illustrating comics and it, was, it wasn't so much comics per se but doing illustrations that told a story so it could just be single images that somehow conveyed some sort of a narrative I mean like a great example of that now is like uh, is Scott C's work uh, on The Great Showdown uh, and his various art books that my daughter absolutely loves where it's weird goofy cute stuff it's little images that convey lots and lots of stuff uh, most of the time so I wasn't having and I wasn't able to have the career I had planned on having in aviation because (laughs)
3: Because it wasn't 1943 anymore
2: Well, that's part of the problem. It wasn't the 40s anymore, which I had failed to research before going to college. And I also ended up meeting somebody and then we had a child and I had a lot of personal responsibilities that had not been in the game plan when I went to school because it was going to be go to school, then go to Alaska (laughs) and try and get work up there as a bush pilot. And then I was really interested in uh, flying for like the parks services, doing like firebombing. And uh, the Peace Corps was a big, big draw to me. I wanted to go to Africa, use my flying skills there to you know deliver cargo and, and do humanitarian aid work and whatnot. And so I had choices. It was either settle for something I didn't want to be doing in aviation, which I ended up doing for a couple of years, and finally said, screw it. You know, The one thing I really enjoy, way, I enjoy way more than flying, is drawing and decide to make a move on it, even though I thought it wasn't that good. (laughs) (laughs) it made sense at the time i don't know how to explain it now we
3: were young and stupid right that's a big now we're old and stupid now we're just old and stupid but yeah we have no excuses anymore it's embarrassing (sighs) I just emotionally abused them into continuing to draw. <laughs> Pretty much.
2: And we had no idea what we were doing. No. And maybe we slightly know what we're doing now, just a little bit, but not much. I'm, I'm just kind of flipping through the first couple pages as Robo crashes into Helsingard's base here in issue one. I can see what I was trying to do in a lot of this stuff, and I could see how I would do it differently now, but wow. I guess it's cool. <laughs> it's neat to see someone not knowing what they're doing, but at least I can see in it where I was trying to go with it. That's that's neat.
3: <laughs> you know, I've seen a lot of art by people who don't know what they're doing, and you fake it very well.
2: <laughs> Thanks. Uh, all these heavy blacks. I was so... Those are the only comics I had left when Brian contacted me because I, I hadn't read comics in regularly in know, 10 years or so. The, the only books i would kept were my old Hellboy graphic novels. And so the only reference I had was... Magnola's work, but his stuff is—you know—it's the page is 90% black and really subtle and geometric and cool. But I was trying to translate that into my cartoony stuff because I was trying to learn from what I was seeing on his pages. And oh yeah, a lot of it just doesn't work so well when you're not using huge black areas. It just. <laughs> Screws things up. Uh, I was also learning to ink along the way, too. I had never inked anything except, the, except for the last four pages of Hank the Bounty Hunter. I'd never inked anything <laughs> prior to this.
1: What about the genesis of the story and the character?
3: Uh, I think that robots are cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, there you go. No, um, In the very beginning, Tom Crobo was an attempt to cash in on the then growing interest in like anime and, and manga and all that jazz. So it was a much more stupid. Uh, concept. It was more like uh, it was much more akin to something along the lines of Dexter's Lab. But that didn't really I did, didn't really interest me personally. On the, you know it was just like hey easy cash in. And mm-hmm. luckily I just had on the idea long enough that it it had already become passe. And so I, I never did cash in on it. But I still had this cool idea for you know just this robot adventurer character. And over the years I um, just really embraced my lifelong love of science and sci-fi and history and alternate history and weird real history and just decided to smash those two ideas together to solve the structural problems of most of mainstream comics, i.e. Uh, huge incomprehensible ever shifting continuity. And I figured, Hey, you can solve all of that. If you just have this robot character whom everyone already knows is super tough and ageless. And just has a bunch of adventures across the 20th century.
2: Bam! Uh, you know, it's funny that you mentioned You know, the original impetus behind it was to, to cash in, and, and yeah,
3: and then we did the exact opposite. Not, uh, yeah, seriously. Well, I don't mean. You know, I don't mean,
2: cash in, and well, I, I guess I do mean it in the normal way you'd interpret it. Uh, but your your thought was not to be super cynical, but your thought was, you know, I need to make a living at this. What sells? And it, it was a very marketing, I you know, yeah. it's a very business driven approach to making comics. And I had the same thoughts myself, which is funny because you know you read our promise about you know no cheesecake, no basically no stupid stuff. But that's what's as far as we've seen in the comic market, that's what sells is stupid stuff like that.
3: But But, sorry to interrupt, but I would I would like to say that I think that 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 the reason that stuff sells is because it's so prominently produced that it has chased away absolutely yes. everyone else yeah it's kind no, of forced i, I don't disagree industry. with that
2: yeah, yeah I, I i do not disagree with that when i sat down to do this part of it i'm you know i'm like looking at my wife and i'm looking at my then toddler <laughs> four daughter i think so <laughs> i don't know she's <laughs> i don't know well <laughs> that one is <laughs> she's that other short person that keeps getting taller me. i don't know yeah geez i think she's almost as tall as tall taller mom now um and i'm like well i want to make work that they would possibly, not, not specifically that they would want to read that's, that's relevant to their interests, but the work that I could put in front of this little girl and not be embarrassed by, and not have to explain things away. I remember this. There was this great moment on uh, one of those like VH1. I love the 80s thing. And it was um, some Hispanic guy from Miami who had like a super like popular Macarena style song. And it was just all about like jiggling butts and having sex with ladies. And this guy comes back later in life in his late 40s. And he's like, yeah, it's like and then I have to explain that to my little kids and they're both girls. And it's like uh, awkward. <laughs> like, I didn't want to have that experience. And just, you know, the comics that had always struck me as being the best comics. If I couldn't specifically say why were books like Hellboy and Bone and like uh, Akira, things like that, where that weird surface level titillation factor was not there. But yet the first comic I sat down and designed as something that I could sell to a publisher and go anywhere with was exactly that. It was this woman who was basically kind of like a a spy cat thief kind of thing who had quasi weird mystical and or mutant powers. I don't even remember. But basically she was just like, you know, skin tight outfit, giant breasts lots of ass shots, and it was pure eye candy with very, very little substance. When I, when I took a look at it, I was, I was really disgusted with it <laughs> and redesigned it into something that met the criteria that would eventually become stuff like Our Promise and just how we, we generally go about making comics. And it completely transformed the character and my interest in it. And I've still never done anything with it because of time, but a lot of the ideas have ended up getting popped into Robo one way or another instead. But I remember talking about this, at Kineticon. And there was this, this father in the audience who, uh, this really sweet guy, comes and sees us every year. Although he didn't stop at our table at New York Comic-Con this year. I saw him a couple times and we were swamped each time, but he's got a daughter who's about my daughter's age, who loves Robo. And she's a huge fan of like the Sparrow and whatnot. And every year I do a little sketch for her and whatnot. And I could see, like, I think I shattered him a little bit <laughs> with that, with that admission that I was also just as, you know, cynical and superficial as everyone else is. And I don't, I haven't talked to him since then. Like he, he has not come to our table since I said that. And I was, I remember almost kind of making eye Contact with him at the convention when I was talking about this, and it, he just looks so sad. I mean, he might have eaten something from the concession stand that wasn't agreeing with him, but <laughs> I don't know. Why should he be sad,
3: though, that you figured out that that was wrong and don't do it?
2: I don't know. I, I, obviously, I, I'm, I'm probably misinterpreting the whole thing. I just, Dave, I need to talk to you, buddy. Come to us at Kinetic Comics <laughs> here. For some reason, I have this weird guilt. Like, I haven't talked to you in a while. and I don't know. Anyway, we both said we're going to make comics, and here's all the things we hate about comics. Let's go make comics that we hate. (laughs) and we kind of ran with that for a little while yeah for like a month and it was like oh (laughs) yeah well yeah and then i couldn't live with myself anymore but then when you and i met up it was kind of interesting in that i i had sat down and made basically a list of what i liked and what i didn't like and the kind of comics i wanted to make and the kind of comics i did not want to work on we were just coming from the same place and with the same ideas and just kind of ran
3: headlong into each other at the perfect time.
1: Mm -hmm. So then this first Um, Robo story, Brian, how much did you know about Robo at the time as a character?
3: Funny couple of stories here for various degrees of funny. The first (laughs) issue is actually the last one that was written for this volume. Wow. Because we had five issues. And so the first one was number two. And then Scott and I were like, what? We kind of feel like we want this and we need this, uh, some kind of introductory not an origin exactly but something like an origin i forget why exactly i think we just felt like that would be the best way to introduce publishers and, and the audience to Robo. let's see so volume two is the
2: ants three is the pyramid and four and five are the Helsingard story. And they're all basically set in the modern day, although they, they do reference back to older things. Yeah. Um, and you do have the flashbacks, kind of. But there wasn't a specific... you know We kept referencing like Indiana Jones and, and things like that. And there was nothing that really specifically addressed that time period or that feeling. And so, yeah, I think we just needed something that was...
3: Earlier. Yeah. But, yeah, how much did I know? Well, I had spent about 10 years uh, prior to that point thinking about Robo off and on. Clearly, I was thinking about other things as well because I'm not quite that slow, but I, I had figured out sort of the broad strokes of his history that he was invented in 1923 by Tesla. There was controversy over his status as, you know, what kind of being is this? Is this property? Is this thing intelligent? If it's intelligent, do we give it human rights, et cetera? And just plotting out different, uh, you know, story beats throughout the the decades. You know, he has an encounter with this uh, or an encounter with that or he crosses paths with some big historical event or whatever. So we had a a fairly strong skeleton going in. And in fact, there's stuff referenced in volume one, that we have not yet come back to. We've been planting seeds all along.
1: <laughs> Sinister gardeners of plots.
3: Yes.
2: I had to figure out Robo from scratch. I guess, in a way, I hope that having someone from the outside having to intimately learn this character kind of like made it be provided a fresh view because there was some stuff with Robo oh, that yeah. I, I felt had to be changed. Yeah. Um, and absolutely for the better. Such as rockets in his feet like Astro Boy so he could fly. <laughs> Uh, oh, pop-up arm blasters yep. that would get more and more sci-fi as the decades went by, which I wasn't opposed to, but I think I thought it was more interesting visually to just have Robo holding stuff instead of having things pop out of him. Uh, yeah. there, there's like the final, final Robo design. It's more or less Robo as we, as as everyone knows him. And I crossed Robo with this other character of mine, uh, whose name I can't even remember now, but I was also kind of working on like a World War II, Indiana Jones spy sort of thing. This guy was like a, an opera for the OSS and had adventures in, in Europe and whatnot. And I had this, this sketch I done of him just in grungy fatigues and just looking all beat up and gross. And I kind of merged them with this very kind of clean, sometimes dressed robot I was trying to design for Brian. And I think just the clean lines of Robo with the, the, the grungy, the Wagner cred, as, as Brian calls it, all over the pants and the, the crappy old uh, sick shooter instead of a fancy sci-fi blaster just kind of it was, it was very much like a, you know, your your chocolates and my peanut butter, sir. Kind of a kind of a moment for us. And <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's also the point where we're really stripping away all this extraneous stuff that Robo could do until basically he was just, if it wasn't for his PhDs, he would just be, you know, this very kind of normal, every every man kind of. He's a janitor bot. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's actually quite stupid. <laughs> so with this first issue, which was actually the sixth issue. Uh, yes. <laughs> now that I know this, it's kind of a weird way for me to approach this. because I, I, I can't think of it as oh, this was really the, it's the first thing anybody's going to read. But, it, but for you guys, it's creative process. It was the sixth thing anybody was going to read. You know, but also it's also the, the the first
2: story that we both worked on. Yeah, because oh. Brian had already written the what became issue two through six. So up to that point, I was just looking at scripts and trying to interpret them. And I hadn't drawn any of them; just reading them. But uh, this this was the first one we drew. So in addition to this being Robo's sort of origin story, this really is the first Robo story that we've collaborated on together in any
1: way. In that case, telling the story, you said you set out to have sort of an origin thing. We got here in the second page. The stakes are high because a general in the U S military is offering robo legal status as a human being and American citizenship, which is pretty big. Like, it's not always in a Robo story no matter what time it's in that you'll actually encounter something that is a pivotal moment in Robo's life because it's got that whole buckaroo bonsai. The story's already been ongoing so much. He, he'll mention something important as an offhand thing and the stuff you'll see on page is obviously
3: very exciting, but it won't be turning points in his life necessarily. I didn't even think of this first issue until it, it was Scott's idea to be like, hey, we should go earlier, you know, sort of an sort of origin. And what's funny is that this first issue is actually probably the most pivotal of certainly the first volume and perhaps the whole series. I mean, because A, this right. is where Robo finally, after like 17 years of you know trying to do it legitimately through the legal system, does the thing that gets him his U.S. citizenship and gets him you know, granted full human rights. This is the first time he encounters Helsingard, who becomes this weird quasi-threat throughout the rest of the 20th century. Which again, we'll have to get back to. Which again, time. we have to get back to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it sets into motion other things, because it puts Robo in a certain place in the world and in history and gets him some attention and creates the impetus for the need for there to eventually be a Majestic 12 and, and the weird Tesla tech spreading throughout the world. I've always thought it was interesting that this sort of... We, we almost did it issue. as like an afterthought, and yet it's like so important to the, the overall mythos.
2: Yeah. Looking specifically at page 2 here, man, I can vaguely recall... Sweating over this entire page because it's like, oh, New York City, draw that. What? And what this is like page two of the first real comic I've ever drawn. I have to draw all of New York City at once. Oh crap. <laughs> I think every panel on here was painful to give you an idea of how much I didn't know. So okay, so there's a drawing of New York City. That kind of worked out okay. It was good enough. There's a bunch of boxes, they look like skyscrapers. We all get the idea. Although for some reason the Empire State Building is right down in the battery. But whatever, it worked. <laughs> then the <laughs> second <helped>. panel <laughs> the second panel with the general sitting at his desk there. It's pretty benign, right? Guy sits at desk, does these things. Well, Okay, I I sketched in uh, studios with live models and things like that, but I've never just from my memory drawn a person sitting. (laughs) And it seems like, right, (laughs) this should be easy, right? Never done that before. So here's this dude just sitting at his desk. That was an amazing challenge. And a a phone? There's a phone on the desk? I've never drawn a telephone. Oh, crap. What does a telephone look like? (laughs) It was ridiculous. I must have searched for hours for reference for the stupid little photos on the back wall behind him. And, you know, they're obscured by word balloons and they're cut off and... (laughs) This, everything on here was just like an utter nightmare for me because I thought, I was like, yeah I'm going to jump in, this is going to be great and every panel, it was just like, oh my gosh I have no idea what I'm doing amazing anxiety uh, over everything and like the plane on page 3 there, that was almost the very first airplane I've ever drawn in my
3: life. My favorite ca- thing about all this though is knowing that Scott goes through it again every single time for every page. <laughs> Pretty
2: much <laughs> well, I can draw phones now, I've also learned to ignore at my peril occasionally like in volume 6 where Brian asked for a phone and I'm like ha 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 smartphones are easy for completely forgetting that like you know 22 pages earlier we'd made a joke about how robo can't use ipads and smartphones <laughs>
1: whatever let's talk about this issue here you like you're saying uh, it features Helsingard really heavily and this is his origin story essentially and he's one of robo's Greatest villains, perhaps the greatest villain, in that he is a constant problem throughout time. And his origin is, uh, by Robo standards, relatively unconventional. It's the most fast and loose that you play with science in, in the uh, the whole thing. And here it is, right off the cuff, and with him with this v- the real organ and becoming this kind of energy being. And that's a lot tougher to swallow than most things you guys go for. I mean, in the second issue, Robo criticizes you know the existence of giant ants and there's a sea monster too, you know, and other other situations. But uh, you know, a human transforming into an energy being and then being implanted into a robot that's a bigger deal do you feel in retrospect that Helsingard is a product of a of a more naive time for where you were headed with robo or is he simply the reason he's he's such a threat is because he's the one thing that defies everything you've set up
3: uh kind of a little bit of both i definitely for for a long time uh fretted over the ink the the whole hollow earth inclusion, uh, his reference to the, to a civilization that he has apparently destroyed down there, the reaction of the, the organ, everything about it, you know, the energy, everything you were saying, because uh, we never come back to that. Uh, there's no, there was no plan to, well, I'm getting we to, that. to we, Okay. Uh, I but for think you're years, getting you're getting I, 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 let, let me restate it for years. There was no plan to come back to it. Uh, to refer to Hollow Earth because it's just too weird. It's just too stupid. I love it as as like a conspiracy theory. I love uh, sci fi stories about it. Um, other than the fact that the 19th century ones tend to be incredibly racist, <laughs> but then that's 19th century sci fi. Forty, but anyway, that's that's 19th century period. period. Yeah. Um. So I, I becoming, but coming, but over the years, you know, thinking about Robo filling up his his world. Why not have a hollow Earth? Uh, I, not, <laughs> not, the, n- <laughs> not not the way that it's always um, or traditionally identified as literally the whole Earth is just this hollow sphere that's idiotic. We have satellites and all kinds of, you know, plate tectonics. We know what's going on down there now. You know, hollow Earth was this quote-unquote theory that was proposed back when we had no idea what was going on under the ground. We knew that caves existed, so it was easy to think, well, what if there was a huge cave and the whole <laughs> Earth was a cave? Oh, Um, but we, we figured out how we could do little pockets of hollow earth and, and, or just weird elements under the under the earth. And we could explain how nobody really knew about it or, or had never really interacted with it, um, as a result of its isolation. And we could use those little pockets to just go crazy because all the rules are off and who better to involve in that. Than Dr. Dinosaur, the real character where all the rules are thrown out the window and nothing makes sense anymore. Uh, the fact that Helsinggard dabbles in that stuff, you know, it leads to his doom. So now we don't really have to worry about Helsinggard and Hollow Earth. But it did open up some interesting ideas for me um, to, do, to fill up Robo's history, uh, pre Robo's history. Uh, so now we were doing a new series of Real Science Adventures. That's six issues of Tesla and his group.
0: Um, and and Real now we're with more
3: ideas of what they were doing even before that. Uh, so, yeah. Was, I, I have thought it was a mistake for years, but we figured out how to make it work.
2: Well, I, was, I actually wasn't even thinking about uh, Volume 8. I was actually thinking of Edison and uh, oh, yeah. all of his weird stuff. And that there's a certain fun with these, these old... Uh, either real or uh, fictional scientific characters who have kind of transitioned from the the 19th century into the 20th century. You know, there's that there was a, there was that that bit of mysticism that went along with some of the science. Yeah. Um, because things were still so some things were not understood yet, and uh, that's where I was actually thinking of because the vir- the idea of like the real uh, the real energy and whatnot ties very much into. Uh, what Edison was doing also with the otic energy and all yeah, that Yeah,
3: it's fast. a very similar... And, you know, yeah. it, and, and it's it all in the ether. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's <laughs> interesting that you uh, conflate those two because at the time, especially in the 19th century and, and early 20th century where Edison would have picked up on um, the otic force, there were a lot of these competing semi-mystical, semi-pseudo-scientific theories about life in the universe and everything. Hello-Earth was definitely one. real came out of that. And then you got the the Orgone and, and nodic and all kinds of stuff going on. And so it, it is fun to have these established ideas in reality and then just, you know, add laser beams to them. And throw <laughs> a robot in there and just have a lot of fun with it. We yeah, should just definitely. credit Wikipedia as code writer and get it over. <laughs> Man, you know what? Wikipedia gets a bad rap. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love Wikipedia because all I need is a superficial beep, beep uh, understanding. <laughs> and that is exactly what Wikipedia gives me. You um, use your imagination,
1: go from there. Yes.
3: Yeah. Exactly.
2: Exactly. Um, I'm continuing to just flip through pages here. Uh, all these heavy blacks. What were they thinking?
3: It works for Mike McDonald. Even as, as early as the second issue, you move away from that. Uh, yeah, because I was so horrified by,
2: <laughs> by what happened
3: in the first
4: issue. have oh I done? I got a question. Um, How many countries is robo-translated in? As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B.
3: He's it Italian, he's Italian. There's Spanish. There's Portuguese, I think. Is there? Okay. I definitely see reviews on sites that uh, are specifically Portuguese and not Spanish. Oh, um, maybe, there's maybe English. There's French. Was there French? There was talking no, French. No. No. no, comics are art in France. They would never
2: translate our stuff. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's true. <laughs> well, what made me think of it was the, all the swastikas and German military stuff. I know that, you know, if it was translated... Oh, yeah, you'd, yeah. Have, you'd have to change everything if you're if it was translated mm-hmm. to German.
2: It's interesting too because I remember when we we went to Italy. We were invited over by uh, Renoir Press, who does the the translation over there, and we did this amazing convention. Had a fabulous week. It and was amazing. It was. Oh God, yeah. Brian ate horse. <laughs> I, mean, I know he did eat horse. I tasted it. It was delicious. It was amazing. <laughs> and I met two people at the convention who loved Robo and were excited to get in. They were pick, They'd already picked it up in English somehow. And they were actually not cool with us translating it into Italian. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're like, like, well, everyone here speaks English and reads it more or less. And their opinion was that the the different languages just serve to separate us somehow. And it would be better if we all just kind of came together in a common language. And it was an interesting thought that I'd never applied to comic books
1: at all. But Uh, one would assume that, uh, you know, Americans are just egotistical for thinking everybody should speak English. But there's some (laughs) way saying the opposite.
2: uh, Legally, uh, English is the international language of business and law. At least in aviation, that was always the case. Like everything is in English. It was the most common language in all the countries that were involved at the time. So it ended up becoming the default. Uh, and then there was that awesome attempt to make Esperanto a real thing, which <laughs> I still think should happen. But
1: <laughs> That's one of my favorite uh, little artifacts in Red Dwarf is there's a lot of Esperanto in the background. Because in the distant in the, in the <laughs> the future, Esperanto was accepted. <laughs> Brought there from 1996 right. by Ricardo Maldivan. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh man, I'm just looking at Robo's wrists in this in this issue. I had not figured out how to make wrists happen for Robo yet. It just looks so that was not weird. A Oh God, yeah! And his hands—they're like metal sausages pinned to a plate. Like I don't know what the hell is going I love,
3: on. I love you and your your food
2: art. I like food art. Oh, his head is no longer a marshmallow for me. I have moved on. He's actually—I finally figured out thinking of Robo in three-dimensional terms because he's got a bit of a beak. He's actually got a turtle head. I kind of. Oh yeah, I see. A, a turtle skull is what I kind of work with more in my head now when I'm drawing his head. Sure. Then this first issue, it's been like a bucket slapped on a giant spring. Like it's just so weird. The little fiddly rings in his neck and uh like because because originally you wanted all sorts of cables and stuff in his neck as i recall like functioning like tendons and muscles would yeah and in my head i was just thinking there's no goddamn way <laughs> <laughs> i can't draw that over and over again uh so this was the compromise and, you know you for wanted, your love of
1: you explosions to- that was a good thing because otherwise how could you validate him surviving all those explosions all the time that is true that is true
2: so this was the compromise, this, this kind of um, vacuum hose yeah. thing. <laughs> oh, he's so goofy looking. His little tiny shoulders and elbows. <laughs> <laughs> Who drew this? this? This is terrible. This fan art is
3: awful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't know the artist of this kind. No. You didn't start no. until volume six. Uh, oh
2: God, yes, that's, that's what we'll tell everyone. Oh God. And this last page I think is taken panel for panel out of an issue of invincible. Sorry, Ryan, but it was a really awesome thing where something happened and invincible lands miles and miles away from whatever it was that punched him or blew up or whatever. So it's like panel one, Mike McNola explosion, panel two, Scott draws a crummy volcano, panel three, four, and five. I'll basically just steal these from Ryan Otley and put them in here because it works so well in his comic. Plagiarism is
1: a great uh, learning tool.
2: Oh, hey, Matt, have you seen there was a Hellboy Universe book that came out recently, not about Hellboy, but about a character... From the universe there was a lobster johnson miniseries a couple years ago yeah. and it involved this dude who was like a test pilot of a of a real powered iron man suit basically and i guess he got his own miniseries and there is a sequence that is basically uh, in in almost panel for panel the sequence of robo blasting into helsingard's Oh wow! Here and popping out of the, <laughs> pop, it's it's drawn way better than this is. <laughs> yeah, and, well, and
3: let's put that out there first.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. I forget who, who it was. It Jason Latour. Jason Latour. And it, it's gorgeous. And I it's not panel for panel. I imagine it's like he probably saw this at some point and it's stuck in his head. Yeah. But it was just I was just looking at it and like people I got a million links to it. Like oh they're stealing your idea. I don't think so. But even if that was like I can't think of anything more flattering that you know yeah. someone doing that and recycling a visual idea like that? Like, why the hell not? Also,
3: Scott, if you have a heart attack, I'm approaching Jason about taking over our duties. That's fine. (laughs) I'm okay with that. (laughs) I am okay with that. I think as our first effort together, it was okay. Two out of ten would not buy.
2: (laughs) <laughs> avoid at all
3: costs <laughs> there's a reason it's free on comiXology <laughs> you, know, you know what What offends me though all right so volume one got nominated for an Eisner for yeah it's our worst years. volume yeah it's our absolute worst volume and like it took them until volume six to redo it I'm like really yeah,
5: yeah.
2: you can never figure out where I come down on that because when they told us we were nominated for an Eisner
3: oh. I had to go I had to go to google don't say this to- mm. To see what an Eisner was. <laughs> no, 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 no. What happened was, mm. so the news breaks, and then Scott IMs me. First it was, what's an Eisner? And I said, well, it's the industry standard award, like the Oscars named after Will Eisner.
1: Who's Will Eisner?
3: <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Scott is the least comics literate person and, I and know that, working in comics. <laughs> that
1: is why Scott I, has to look so much stuff up.
2: I hated comics. Um, how do I put this? <laughs> I found American <laughs> comics. We're not recording, are we? We're recording. We, record. we could yeah. record. That's fine. You know what? As a kid, I found American comics in the the main to be terrible. And compared to their European and Asian counterparts, they are terrible.
3: Now, let's be specific here. This was the 90s, and there was just no way around it. Yeah, this was the 80s and 90s. And back when the
2: access to non-American stuff was extremely limited, so you really only got the best of the best. I, gr- I grant you that, obviously. But the art styles of most comics that I was seeing, which is primarily mainstream stuff, was so stiff and yeah. so wooden and yeah. so boring. And I was really inspired by animation and film. And I was, when I was a kid, I was going to go to art school for animation because I like the movement in it and the, the life that was in it. And all of that was completely absent in most com- American comics that I ever saw. So I had zero interest in them. And I had a brief interest during the 90s, uh, as you could tell from that first page of Hank the Bounty Hunter. (laughs) I I discovered X-Men, I think, right around when Jim Lee started with issue number one. My brother had bought a copy of it, and I read it, and I was like, well, this is pretty good. I don't understand why I can see their muscles through their clothes. looks a little strange to me, but it's a number one. There was some good action, and... All right, I'll read a couple. And I got hooked for a while on the concept of the X-Men, and when everyone left the form image, I stopped reading the X-Men cuz I didn't like the people that took over and I started going backwards in time. Back to about like the fall of the mutants, I guess, stuff. Like so like Mark Silvestri on uh, his run on things. He had a very kind of interesting, it was like an, more like an old school newspaper comic strip style to his art. Like it reminded me of when you read Spider-Man or the Phantom in black and white. Newspapers. So I'd really dug his stuff. Uh, plus, you know, Long Shot and Dazzler. Whoa.
1: <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That was dope. Anyway, he had a lot of life in his artwork, which is what I enjoyed about it. It was very dynamic. And like later on down the road, it, it got kind of extreme to like everything in the 90s. And I didn't care for it too much. But the, his older stuff like that, I, I thought was really interesting. And then I kind of, you know, I, I noodled around in the superhero world looking for good stuff. And I think the only thing else I ever found that I liked was Alan Davis and his run, um, the whole Excalibur thing. And there were oddball things. Like I loved Arthur Adams work. And like he did that uh, giant size X-Men with uh, the X-Babies in Mojo yeah. World, and I didn't understand any of the X-Men story at that point. I didn't understand how the how continuity changed constantly and any of that. So to me, this was like this weird, isolated, standalone story where I had a vague idea who the characters were, and suddenly they were little kids, and they were drawn really, really well and cartoony and, and interestingly, and I enjoyed it. But for the most part, yeah, I had no idea about mainstream comics. And, and, and you that weren't, I, I
1: assume you were probably, if you're saying American comics, so you probably weren't reading the, any of the independents that were out of the time, like Service the Aardvark or anything like that.
2: Oh, No, those I was. Those I was. So uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, number one, was the first comic or one of the first comics that I bought on my own. The Marvel used to do these oversized magazine copies of uh, versions of uh, the Star Wars when they had the license for that. Mm-hmm. And my, mo- my mother bought me some of those because I was a Star Wars fan. And mostly they were terrible, but I did them just because they were Star Wars. But Ninja Turtles, Serapis, uh, I never quite got into. Uh, adolescent Radioactive Ninja Hamsters, that was a big one. That was when I discovered <laughs> parody and humor comics. And holy crap, was I hooked. There's another great one called Gun Fury, which is like, imagine psychotic Frank Castle the Punisher as portrayed by Adam West. <laughs> it it like was it. it was so nuts and just so crazy that I, I adore. It always stuck with me, and I found it on the internet last year, and I bought all like six or seven issues of it just to have them. And I'm looking at them now, and you know they're not that great, but like as a kid, it was like r- amazing humor to me, and it was just like the best thing ever. And then I was buying uh, Robotech comic books because I liked the Robotech anime, and oh my god, they made a comic book version, yay! But other than that, yeah, I wasn't really reading stuff uh, and eventually i found hellboy and bone and independent like create her own work like that mm-hmm. Really, really interested me, but they were so divorced from what you think of when you think of walking into most comic book shops. Right. You know, like that—that's just a tiny portion of what's there. So yeah, I had zero interest in this stuff. Um, so I was, the the medium itself fascinated me. And I ended up discovering, uh, you know, like Akira and Appleseed, and these things that are like, you know, really like the these books that set the tone and the look of manga for decades. That you know, it, they were just these were amazing works, uh, and again, all by a single creator. And uh, so the, the the comic book thing of having constantly rotating artists and writers and everyone reworking things. And and it really turns me off. It was fun to be into the X-Men for a little while. And I even interned at Marvel Comics in high school. And that was an excellent experience. But I had none of the personal attachment to those properties that a lot of people did and do. So yeah, I didn't know who Will Eisner was because, well, American comics, whatever. (laughs) So while I was really, really disappointed when we didn't get it, because I was like, wow, this is like a real Cinderella story thing. If we had, I, you know, I didn't know what it was five minutes before we didn't get it. So, (laughs) so it didn't really matter. It was cool that we got nominated again recently, but I was, I get more out of it when like libraries put us on their lists of, you know, top 10 recommendations for young readers and and things like that. I guess that's the audience I would like to put my focus on, is people who are looking for something that's interesting and different and unique from other stuff that's out there. Uh, Also that we also tap into something that appeals to more mainstream comic readers. I think it's great, but I've never come at this hoping to get that audience, I guess.
3: Right. Um, Yeah, how do we get the Spider-Mans? How do we get the (laughs) Super-Mans?
2: Um, I was always more into like uh, history and hard science fiction stuff. So the idea of skin tight suits and shooting laser beams from your eyes was just, it, as a kid, it just it was stupid to me. I was always more interested in stories about guys like Indiana Jones who were extraordinary, but they were just dudes. And most of the time they were getting their asses kicked and they overcame their obstacles despite their limitations. And I always found that far more compelling than, Oh, here's Superman. He's basically flying Jesus and you can't touch him unless you come up with all these convoluted rules
1: and mechanisms to defeat him. <laughs> <laughs> Let's cut to some reader slash listener questions right now. If you guys ever want to ask Brian and Scott some questions, you know, figure out what volume we're about to be recording. Uh, We'll usually have some notes posted on the Nerdy Show forums. You can also ask us on Twitter, hashtag AskRobo, and um, then we'll find your questions. We got one uh, from Darren Reed on Twitter. He says, have you ever considered doing a motion slash audio version of Robo for visually impaired readers?
2: I think we've been asked that before, haven't we? Uh, uh, you know, it's not something that we've actively considered. It's certainly not something we would be opposed to. I don't know how we would do that, though. But if, if there was already someone who was doing this kind of work and they wanted to adapt Robo for it, I would think that would be great.
1: Yeah, presumably you'd need the backing of your publisher and or a third party. Yeah, yeah,
2: I mean, I'm sure Red Five, our publisher, would endorse it. Yeah. Uh, oh no, more people.
1: Oh no, more people reading
2: our stuff is terrible. But yeah, I, I think it's something that we are not equipped to do on our own. We've been promising a merchandise store for freaking T-shirts and stickers for two years now, and we can't even pull that off. So, we, although we are, we're going to. We're just waiting on something. <laughs> it's finally actually in the works. But you know, this sounds like a much more complicated project. So we would definitely need to have. We would need adults. Adult. Yes, that's what
1: I was just thinking, yeah. Well, I guess then this would be a good time to ask what the status of uh, Atomic Robo Last Stop, the uh, animated short film, is. Do you guys know? Yeah. Uh, very nearly done. Oh. Very, yeah. It is trucking right along. There was a time where there was an additional Robo short that was being discussed. What's happened with that?
2: Uh, There have been a couple of other Robo shorts, but they've all um, disappeared. disappeared. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's, it's all Victory's game at this point, and they are trucking right along. And yeah, we're excited to see that come out, and we're actually we're we're waiting on that to come out and see the reaction to that before we uh, announce the next thing we want to do, because that'll be interesting. Because this has been that was very cool, and we're really excited to see it coming to fruition. But in a weird way, it's like, this is like very much Victory's project and it's just using our stuff. We're kind of involved, but they're doing all the heavy lifting on it and all the footwork and they did all the Kickstarter stuff. And, you know, we're just like the quasi celebrity who comes out and endorses the
1: shampoo,
2: (laughs) (laughs) you know, some old fifties live television show.
1: We got a couple questions from Berto Elcon on the Nerdy Show forums. He asks, "Why the scattered timeline? Why not go in order with Robo's stories?" Boring.
3: I mean, <laughs> I mean, wait. Do, uh, uh, yeah, nobody really wants to sit down to Robo's life story in order, uh, starting in 1923 and working our way slowly but inexorably forwards. Additionally, even if there are people out there who want that. What if we think of something new to add into the past? Oh, too late. We did that. We skipped the 30s already. We're in the 40s now. We can't go back and do this story. The whole idea is to do it in these jumping around so that we can, there's every volume is a new accessible jumping on point and it leaves us these gaps in the timeline so that at any point, if we think of something really cool to put further back,
5: we can just go and do that.
3: And moving forward, assuming even if that never happens, we're always working on the next idea that has us really excited. So we never have to sit here and, oh, we got to slog through all of World War II. Oh, this is going to take forever Uh, before we can get on to, you know, the jet age. Right. Yeah. I think it's really
2: the appeal lies in that ability to tell whatever story we want to tell in whatever era we want to tell, when we want to tell it. I mean, I already find it maddening to know what we're going to be drawing and working on for the next three or four years and not being able to get to it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's jumping all through time and having fun with stuff. Like I could not <laughs> imagine
3: a slavish devotion to linear, linearity is what has really hobbled, uh, you know, Marvel and DC, they're always taking place. Now, always now, 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 now. So you, you get effectively what this guy's asking for and look at what it's done to their stories. Uh, you can hold together continuity these days for almost a whole year before you have to reboot or, ignore, you know, half the chunk of it or whatever. Yeah, I
2: remember someone once floating the idea that, you know, it would be cool to approach superhero comics where anytime a new creative team took over, A, you weren't, you know, they had longer runs, but when someone else took over, it basically reset everything so you could retell or tell different stories but they they weren't reliant on each other. Kind of in the way that, like, Arthur C. Clarke would write his books. Like, 2001, 2010, they take place in parallel universes or they're somewhere in the multiverse because the technology that he tried to use, real technology and then technology would change and he would integrate that into the next project and yes it was referencing the same characters and same events but they were from slightly different world universes to account for
1: especially between mm-hmm. those first two books considering one is set in the moons of saturn and one's set in the moons of jupiter <laughs> yeah we jump around because it's fun to jump around jump up jump up and get down so,
3: so yeah. there like, you have it bottles and hands
1: <laughs> just clap your hands <laughs> uh, berto has another question which is have you had any problems keeping the atomic robo promise so far
2: But does he know I have two turntables and a microphone? (laughs) Hmm. I think the only part of the promise we've had trouble with is the uh, no late books, which I think we've had to modify that. It's, it, no, now it's like no delays that we can avoid kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, we have had books drop late and it drives me nuts.
1: You, you do actually cite some, Diamond specifically. No delays that we have any control over, i.e. Diamond will be Diamond. Well, yeah, there's
2: sometimes there's a lot. There's like weird scheduling things or our printer is, you know, we thought they were taking the books this week, but then they have another job they're still working on. They can't take it until this next week. And
3: Or and it, my favorite,
2: we ran out of paper. We ran out of paper. Yeah, that was a radiator pump. Amazing one. Oh, that was that was a good bleed. There was oh, man, a, yeah. Put a like, old pump handle on that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, it's not like we're using HoDunk. N- nobody's ever heard of them printers. We're using the printer everyone uses for comics. <laughs> what do you mean you ran out of paper? You know that you're, oh, whatever.
1: Sure. So, so we're <laughs> yeah. gonna, we'll link to the Atomic Robo promise on this episode's page.
2: Yeah, as far as the other stuff, the no cheesecake, the no... That's
3: uh, right. Yeah, that is actually super easy.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, the rest of it's really, really easy. I mean, I can't help it if I get pneumonia and can't work for a couple weeks. But No I'm eggs, no
1: cheesecake, no reboots, no filler.
2: Yeah. No problem. Uh, exactly. And again, that jumping around in time in Robo's life actually makes avoiding the no filler thing ridiculously. Easy. It's a non-issue. And again, because we're our own book, you don't have to worry about filler. So if I'm doing like X-Men, say, and there's a a big summer event coming up or we're coordinating something with the Avengers books, when you want things to line up properly, you get these issues where like nothing
3: happens because you're stalling for time, basically. Or you're needlessly over explaining how things got to a certain point when you could just start the issue at the point. Oh,
2: my God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember when we were in Austin, I bought that Avengers trade paperback because I wanted to read some Avengers because what the hell? Why not? I didn't know where to start with anything. Someone suggested the one I ended up getting and it was 120 pages of Iron Man and Miss Marvel standing around they had to rebuild the Avengers team and like you know it was just like it was like fanboys and fangirls standing around thinking well if I built my dream team it would be this, except it was happening in the comic. And I'm not sure, like, is that reverse meta? Is that, <laughs> I don't know what that is. It's just like there was no story at all. It was 120 pages of zero story, of just like complete and utter pointless filler. It was beautiful. I forget who did the art, but it was beautifully drawn. And it was like, I, I instantly forgettable. Like,
1: I, ugh. so the I'm, promise
2: pretty easy to keep mostly.
1: <laughs> we got one more question. It's from Ben Kidd via Twitter. What's the beef between Robo and Stephen Hawking?
3: You know, I, I think I figured this out. We can only have one super robot in the, in Robo's world. <laughs> I want to be one, too. <laughs> but, you know, in Volume 1, we, we introduced the rivalry between Atomic Robo and Stephen Hawking. Okay. And it's just this throwaway gag, and we never come back to it. But we, we never just do that. There's always a reason behind everything, even if you never see it on the page. And I, I've stalled since then because I was just like, what what was it for these two? Was it some kind of lover's quarrel and Hawking ended up with a girl? But then I thought, well, maybe that'll be perceived as cruel because then people might think the joke is that Stephen Hawking could ever get a lady— But he's actually quite the playa, especially before, even after, but also before his condition, which is when this story would have taken place. But then you have to kind of super explain that and whatever. But I finally came down to it. Hawking was very strongly involved in uh, our current understanding and current theories of black holes. Uh, I think that that was their their source of contention. Robo would have introduced the theory that black holes were related to the Shadow from Beyond Time and the fifth cardinal direction, Zorth. (laughs) Yes, you would have. (laughs) Yeah. So it's this professional rivalry. And much like how uh, Tesla and AC kind of won over Edison's uh, direct current, uh, Hawking's theory has proven to be more prevalent and useful or accurate or whatever. There was some really intense, you know, astrophysics theoretician bickering going on behind the scenes. And now they have this just borderline murderous um, rivalry (laughs) with one another. Because if you consider what Hawking did... I mean, that is, that, that's torture. That is two years of isolated... I mean, it's insane. It's, it's maniacal. <laughs> I like that.
2: That's good. That's good.
3: <laughs> and just as an aside, I recently watched
2: the uh, the Star Trek Next Generation episode where Data is on the holodeck. I think he's analyzing his dreams or something like that with uh, Einstein, uh, Newton, and actual Stephen Hawking. And it was just amazing. <laughs> They're playing poker, too, on the holodeck. It's
3: beautiful stuff.
1: All right, guys. So. Uh, If you want more Atomic Robo nuts and bolts, here's where to find it, nerdyshow.com slash Atomic Robo. We will be covering all of Robo all in good time, and when new Robo issues start coming out, well, we'll be going right back to the brand new stuff, giving you issue-by-issue coverage as they come out. If this is your first episode, welcome. If you haven't caught up on Robo, just follow some links at the Atomic Robo page, and you will find yourself amidst some of the greatest action science of your life. And uh, if you have caught up to Robo, but you haven't heard Nuts and Bolts before, then by all means, check out our issue-by-issue coverage of Atomic Robo Volume 7, and uh, you will hear behind-the-scenes stuff you would never even think to ask questions about. Uh, pretty extensive things, especially what with all the airplanes in it. Uh, man, Scott goes crazy. It's, it's fantastic. You, you want your healthy dose of, uh, of strange military secrets and all that turned into uh, science fiction? You'll be pleased. Scott, Brian, what do you guys got cooking uh, in early 2013?
3: Oh, Lord, too much. We got uh, the next batch of Real Science Adventures is coming out. And that is going to be six issues of Tesla's team beating the hell out of some big conspiracy to overthrow the United States government in the year 1893. Awesome. Don't question it. Uh, Won't. What else is there? Good. Volume 8. Scott's drawing that. First issue will, should be out in May. Awesome. Fingers crossed. Yeah.
1: Or uh, metal sausages crossed. Clank. Clank. Clank.
3: That is Atomic Robo and the Savage Sword of Dr. Dinosaur, wherein people finally get what they've been asking us for, a series of Dr. Dinosaur going crazy and trying to take over or destroy the Earth.
2: <laughs> so if it doesn't work, it's all your fault, guys.
3: Yeah. It is not on us. It's not our problem.
2: No. So uh, you've, been, you've been asking for it. Now you're going to get it. Well, uh, Free Comic Book Day will also drop in May.
3: Yeah, Free Comic Book Day. Uh, uh, not with Dr. Dinosaur, so deal with that. Because you get a whole <laughs> volume. You get a whole volume. I mean, what more do you want? It does tie into that volume, though. Yeah, it does. I think that's it, right? I think that's all we got going. Hi, guys. This is Cap from the future,
1: which is now your past. But more future than when we recorded this episode. Some technical stuff happened, and we weren't able to release this episode until, well, now. And as a result, we don't have time to do the rest of volume one. No, we got to move on to brand new robo stuff. So expect us to be picking up volume one and every successive volume periodically in between robo volumes. We gotta move on to bigger things like the new Free Comic Book Day, Volume 8, maybe even some other stuff too. Because that uh, Atomic Robo film from The Fictory, its release is right around the corner. And celebrating it, they put out a game for the iPod and iPad called Violent Science. It's an Atomic Robo side-scroller. Have you not always wanted that? We'll have a link to where you can pick that up on this episode's page. Also, Brian and Scott put together... An exclusive comic for Comixology. It's a digital comic made for the digital comics medium. It's got all those dramatic panel-to-panel frame reveal kind of pseudo-animation things that you've come to know and love from things like Mark Wade's Thrillbent Web Comics, etc. So that's over at Comixology. We'll have a link to where you can pick that up on this episode's page. And it's a brand new Robo story. It's called Atomic Robo, Two-Fisted Tales. Along came a Tarantula. And I did say that weird on purpose. So check those out. Links on this episode's page. And also... I can't say this with 100% certainty, but there's a good chance that at this year's Heroes Con in June, there could be a live version of Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts with Brian Scott and I. Just putting that out there, you might want to head over to Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina to get a front row seat for a live, all new Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts. As the Mick kids would say, hey, it could happen. And, 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 you better be sure to run out to your comic shop today or. Follow the link on this episode's page where you can pick it up online because, oh my god, there's a new Atomic Robo Real Science Adventures out. So be sure to pick up issue 7 of Atomic Robo Real Science Adventures today wherever you get comic books from. (laughs) So uh, for for Atomic Robo volumes, physical and digital, and any other Atomic Robo stuff you need, you can head to this episode's page or you can go to atomic-robo.com. Do it now! And once again, if you got any questions for Brian and Scott, You know where to hit us up: Nerdy Show forums or on Twitter hashtag AskRobo. I'm Cap. I'm Brian. I'm the Pumpkin. (laughs) Later.
5: Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts is brought to you by Nerdy Show. If you somehow enjoyed what you've heard, you can show your support by telling a friend or going to nerdyshow.com and clicking the support button. Even a small contribution gets you cool nerdy perks, possibly crystals, and allows you to take part in our monthly support drive contests. For more episodes of Atomic Robo Nuts and Bolts, videos, contests, and other nerdy programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Subscribe to all the Nerdy Show Network's latest episodes via the iTunes Store, and remember to follow us on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Nerdy Show and Dr. Dinosaur. For all Atomic Robo news, go to atomic-robo.com. A highly inefficient URL.